How I ended up in Milan takes some explanation. I'd been invited to speak to a science fiction media convention in Bellaria, a small resort town halfway up the eastern side of the Italian boot. I assumed the audience enjoyed what I had to say, but afterward the English translation of the web review said that I totally fell and that I was less brilliant. I decided not to let it bother me. It was probably true, and I've been called worse in English. I wandered around Italy for a bit, finally ending up in Venice, a clustered jumble of narrow passages, shops, canals, bridges, piazzas, and little shops filled with gaudy glassware or glittering masks, plus pastries and pizza everywhere. The whole thing is a puzzle box, a gaudy architectural confection too preposterous to be real, crowded with herds of gray-haired tourists, of which I was not one, and people taking pictures of each other. After three days, I was ready to move on. I planned to spend a few days in Paris, then London, where I had some business waiting for me. The usual way from Italy to Paris is through Geneva, but I'd done that trip. I wanted to see some different countryside. Looking at a map, I assumed I could catch a train from Milan to the south of France, famous among Impressionist painters for its wonderful light. So I booked a morning reservation and arrived in Milan shortly after noon. That's when the adventure began. Nether Words Read for you by Charles Logan. Night Train to Paris by David Gerald. Part 1 Trenitalia didn't have any trains to the south of France, not from Milan. They did have one to Geneva, where I could catch a train to Paris, but it had already pulled out. The only train to France was the night train to Paris, leaving at 23.38. But they wouldn't honor my rail pass. 96 euros, please. I dithered with the lady at the customer service desk for a bit, trying to find an alternate way out of Italy, but there wasn't one. My options were simple. Stay in Milan for a night so I could catch the next day's train to Geneva, and then Paris, and lose another whole day in travel or spend the 96 euros and take the night train to Paris. Thinking about it, the cost of the train would be almost the same as a hotel room, maybe a little more, and I'd be in Paris at 9.09 the next morning. Of course, it also meant an eight-hour layover until the train boarded. I thought a short walk through the neighborhoods surrounding the train station might use up some time, but I found little to hold my interest. I did find a McDonald's with free Wi-Fi, but I've never had much interest in pictures of cats with badly spelled captions. Back at the terminal, I still had six hours to wait. I found a place to sit at the end of a long row of chairs and curled up with the first book of a popular seven-book trilogy, of which only the first five have been published. Starting an unfinished series was an act of faith on my part, an assumption that someday there would be a conclusion. The television adaptation had caught my interest enough that I had grown particularly impatient to see a certain little weasel receive a well-deserved and extremely painful death. The rhythm of the tale demanded it. I, confess, do not read many works of pseudo-medieval fantasy, 
my mind starts wandering into questions of physicality. Nobody wakes up in the morning after a battle, aching and bruised, in too much pain to move. Nobody's wounds get infected. Despite the absence of hot baths, everybody is leaping eagerly into bed with everybody else, and nobody ever catches a sexually transmitted disease. You never hear about the fleas or the lice either, or the pox. Shortly, I discovered why you cannot read for long in a train station, especially not a European train station. The ever-changing multitudes passing through are a magnet for pickpockets and beggars. My best defense against a pickpocket is to wear an angry scowl and a photographer's vest with a multitude of zippered compartments. So far, that's worked. But there is no equally effective defense against panhandlers. In my imagination, the Milanese beggars have organized themselves into some kind of mendicant's guild, all working the same route through the train station, spacing themselves at five-minute intervals. First, the stoop-shouldered old woman in a shawl. A few minutes later, the tall black man with a thick, unrecognizable accent, and after him, a frantic-looking woman of disheveled appearance. A little later, the scraggly old man without any teeth who reeks offensively of alcohol and urine. Then, of course, a young woman with an adorable but forlorn toddler in hand. And finally, the aggressive fat woman who confronts with such a demanding demeanor the only possible response is rudeness. She strides away as if you're the one in the wrong. One at a time, they start at the south end of the row of chairs and work their way up. Reaching the last seat north, they move into the main part of the terminal and continue a circuitous route through the arriving and departing passengers, eventually coming back around full circle to the south end of the line of chairs again. If you're only waiting for a short time, you don't see the pattern. If you're sitting for more than an hour, you start to recognize the players in this game. I began to feel like a character trapped in a Charles Dickens novel, Perhaps I could have one of those wonderfully unforgettable names. Fetcher Pennysworth, or Carfax Abbey, or something like that. But here in the Milan train station, any sustained mental exercise, working on the laptop, reading, or just listening to music, slowly goes from uncomfortable to impossible. The interruptions come one after another. It's not just Milan, of course. All the major train stations in Europe have the same entourage of scroungers, vagabonds, and opportunists. They've been here since before Caesar. They'll probably be here accosting travelers when we're all beaming from place to place via public teleportation portals. The passengers will arrive and depart. The beggars will stay. The only permanent residence of the terminal. At last, with little time to spare before departure... The giant display board announced that the night train to Paris would be leaving from bin 14. I presume the same scene happens every night. Seemingly from nowhere, a crowd coalesces into a surge, everyone hurrying down the platform with worried expressions and too much luggage, myself included. I follow the flow, getting quickly caught up in it, one more pebble in a horizontal avalanche. My ticket assigned to me was carriage 89, almost all the way up to the front of the train. It was a long walk, and my legs had already begun to remind me with appropriate twinges and pain that I am no longer a young man. Out of breath and aching from the effort, I arrived at the carriage, shoved my suitcase up the steps, and pulled myself in after it. 
My compartment was toward the front of the car, more distance to push my luggage. I had not been buying souvenirs, but my suitcase was getting heavier anyway, all across Europe. I blamed the suitcase, not my age. At last, I pushed my personal entourage into the narrow cabin and sank gratefully onto the broad seat that I expected to be my bed for the night. Just sitting quietly by myself, no noise, no beggars, nothing else to do, I could let myself relax. Next up, Paris. Departure in 15 minutes. I pulled out my camera and snapped a few photos from the train window. A worker was walking along the track, stabbing trash with a pointed stick and putting it into a plastic bag. I snapped his photo. People going about the daily business of life are fascinating to me. Their faces, their postures, whole stories are written in their body language. Yes, I take pictures of scenery too, but I also take pictures of the little details, the nuts and bolts of the world. Window boxes, doorways, vaulted ceilings, balconies, terraces, all kinds of architectural trim. There is genuine artistry in the ordinary. All those little things we miss because we never stop to look. To my eye, a woman looking out a window at the traffic below, caught in the afternoon sunlight, can have the same sudden beauty as a Vermeer painting of a girl with a pearl earring. With still some time before departure and nothing else to photograph, I began reviewing my photos. I'd been experimenting with the auto HDR and a third stop overexposure to bring out the details in dark spaces. For the most part, the experiment had worked. The details in the dark areas were visible now. The lighter areas seemed suffused with light. I'd stumbled onto it by forgetting that my glasses darkened automatically in the sunlight. So I had tweaked the exposure, but the experiment was successful. The effect reminded me of the French Impressionists, especially Monet's delicate perspectives. I clicked through slowly, quite pleased with myself. Some of my photos looked good enough for publication. At least, to me they did. My solitude was short-lived. The cabin door slammed open, and a stout, husky man in workman's clothes pushed in, shoving a worn-looking duffel before him. He smelled of tobacco, and alcohol, and sweat. Three of my least favorite smells. Buongiorno. He boomed it in thick Italian. Buongiorno, I echoed, half-heartedly. Ah, English, he said. You are English? No, sorry. Canadian. American. Ah, America. I love American food. Hamburger, cheeseburger, barbecue, see? You are enjoying Italy, I hope. It's very beautiful, I said politely. Molto bella. I'd picked up a few words and phrases, enough to say please and thank you appropriately. The man busied himself with his luggage for a bit, pushing and shoving it into an overhead space. Meanwhile, the train lurched into action. It grumbled its way through the train yard, out of the station and into the larger brightness of the night. The shadowed lights of Milan rolled past in orange gloom. Finally satisfied that he had stowed his luggage safely, the man settled himself opposite me, clearly ready for a conversation. So, where in America is your home? Los Angeles, I admitted. Ah, Los Angeles. Hollywood, where the movie stars live. You are a movie star? I had to smile at that. 
I shook my head. Fame is not something I aspire to. Aside from a few lines of dialogue in an internet episode, I've avoided the dangerous side of the camera. But you know the movie stars, yes? I shook my head again. Aside from one magic moment in Hollywood where Federico Fellini and Sofia Loren had stood next to me in the warm evening while we waited for our respective limousines, my contact with the industry has been minimal. But I did enjoy watching her breathe. Occasionally, the gods give us little blessings to remind us that life can be amazing. But I didn't mention the episode. Some pleasures are best kept private. I was hoping he would take the hint that I had little interest in conversation this late at night. He didn't take the hint. He thrust out his hand enthusiastically. Claudio, he said. I am Claudio. You are? I introduced myself, already resigned to the casual interrogation of a stranger in search of some common ground and the empty chatter that would inevitably follow. He pointed to my camera. You are a photographer? A professional? I shook my head. I'd sold a few photos here and there, but I hadn't pursued it as an income source. Maybe someday I'd feel that my photos were worth publishing. But right now I felt certain that the National Geographic already had enough pictures of the Rialto Bridge in Venice, even at 24 megapixels. But you take pictures, yes? Yes. Maybe you will catch a picture of the... How do you say it? Great mystery of the train here. The word mystery has always caught my attention. Ever since I was nine when I'd found a copy of Edgar Allan Poe's Tales of Mystery and Imagination on my father's bookshelf. Roderick Usher still lurked beneath my nightmares, a tall, gaunt figure backlit by horror. But despite my relentless curiosity, I've learned to be increasingly skeptical. Most mysteries are wishful thinking. Nonetheless, I had to ask, This train has a mystery? See, see! He said enthusiastically, A very great mystery. Un grande misterioso.